Florida Governor Ron DeSantis goes after big banks for dropping gun companies. Plus, Four Boxes Diner host Mark Smith gives us an overview of the legal landscape post-Bruin. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter if you want to keep up to date with what's going on with guns in America. Uh, I'm also a CNN contributor. I mentioned that because for those watching on YouTube, today I'm wearing a suit. Uh, I just got back from an interview I did with Jake Tapper and I didn't have time to change into my normal casual uh, outfit for this show, but I, hopefully you can uh, bear with me here. We have someone worth dressing up for on the show today, actually, uh, Mark Smith, with us to talk about what's going on in the legal side of things since Bruin. You know, we've talked a lot about specific cases and stories here, but I think this week it'll be good to do a general overview. So, Mark, welcome to the show. You tell people just a little bit more about yourself. Come on, Steve. First of all, we know you dress like that in the range. I've seen the photograph. So who are you kidding talking about being on CNN? That's how you shoot. When you shoot your AR, you dress exactly like that. Sometimes. Sometimes. Well, I think, you know, um, obviously I run the Four Boxes Diner Second Amendment channel on YouTube and talk a lot about, like I say, you know, the geeky inside baseball of the Second Amendment litigation and legal world and try to really drill down into what's going on in the courts. And I try to also explain, you know, what's happening, how to look down the chessboard, uh, you know, how are people trying to maneuver both the pro-gun side and the anti-gun side? What's the strategy um, and how to think about some of these? Because sometimes you see something that appears to be a win, but it's really a loss and sometimes you see something that appears to be a loss and it's really a win. So I try to break it down and I try to look down the chessboard, for example, before Nicerpa versus Bruin came out, Steve, you know, I was talking about the dangers of the notion of sensitive places that as soon as the gun you know, control movement was going to lose Bruin, which I anticipated, uh, they were going to try to declare everything a sensitive place, which is a, you know, government mandated gun free zone, which is where they've gone. Uh, not so successfully. I think, you know, that's not going to work for them, but that's exactly where I anticipated they were going to go and that's where they went. So I try to, again, predict a little bit and tell people where I think things are going to be going, uh, the good, the bad and the ugly. Yeah. And you're an author and a lawyer as well. So you you know quite a lot about this topic. And I've always trust your analysis. Uh, whenever you put out a video, I try to watch it and get a good feeling for uh, you know wh- where things are at. I think you're you're very reliable in that regard. You don't re- you don't put forward a lot of clickbait or or sensational stuff. I think your your content is very solid, and uh, that's why I wanted to have you on my show. Uh, I was on your show once yes. before, and so I figured it was time to do a crossover <laughs> Great. Uh, and have you on here. But uh, you know, you because that is one of the things I really enjoy about your content and and your writing and your life and your speak as well um, is that you you focus on the strategic big picture stuff. Uh, it's not just here's what happened in this case, as important as that is, and you, you obviously do an, analyze individual cases and their outcomes too. You have a knack for seeing the, the long term uh, and how things are going to move down the road. So let's get into that part of, of the discussion here. Bruins happened happened last June. It's not that long ago, right? Especially yeah. in, in uh, constitutional law terms, right? Uh, but But there's been quite a lot of development to this point. Where where do you see things as of today 
in terms of um, how federal law has changed as a result of Bruin? Well, I think the Second Amendment movement is doing extraordinarily well uh, in the courts. You have to keep in mind, Steve, that, that Heller versus the District of Columbia was decided in 2008. From 2008 and 2022, you had really a rebellion among federal judges in many parts of the country to try to ignore and pretend that Heller didn't exist and try to find excuses to ignore our fundamental right to keep and bear arms. But since Bruin, we have literally won more Second Amendment cases by orders of magnitude in the last you know seven or eight months since June of 2022 than we had done so in the prior 10 plus years. And I think that alone tells you a couple different things. First of all, it tells you just how powerful the sort of analytic methodology of NYSERPA versus Bruin was. Because when you do high-end constitutional litigation, Steve, it's not just who wins the case. Of course, who wins the case is very important. But equally important is how they win the case, the methodology that gets applied because the Supreme Court only takes about 80 cases a year. So when they decide a case, it's not just about who's the winner, who's the loser. It's also about what is the teaching tool, the methodology, the legal approach that they're trying to teach the lower courts what they should be doing going forward in similar cases. And when NYSERPA versus Bruin by saying to the lower courts, look, the founding fathers told us that the balancing of interest between the good of guns and the bad of guns to the extent that to the extent that exists has already been done for Americans in the form of the Second Amendment. That was the outcome of a balancing set of interests by our founding fathers, balancing, you know, the government authority and power on the one hand against individual freedom on the other hand. And that gave rise to the text of the Second Amendment. And now the Supreme Court says going forward, we want text and history and not balancing tests going forward. And that's made a big difference, Steve. Yeah, I think that's a really important point about Bruin itself that gets overlooked a lot. Thomas talks ex exactly about this, about how the Second Amendment itself is the result of a balancing test. And so taking that and then applying a balancing test on top of it doesn't make any sense uh, from, from his point of view, right? And it's something I think gets lost a lot in discussion of Bruin, right? You know, focus on the text and tradition, uh, text and tradition uh, aspect of it, because that's how you practically go about making uh, a decision under the standard. But why they went with that often gets ignored when people talk about Bruin. And so I think that's a really key point here. The, the balancing test, they, Americans have, through having a Second Amendment in the first place, has already determined that gun ownership in society is valuable and weighs, outweighs the negatives that come along with it, right, as on a whole. Absolutely. And, um, in fact, you know, Justice Scalia said this exact same thing in Heller. He mm -hmm. specifically said at the end, as you know, Stephen, he said, look, the founding fathers did this. So, you know, coming to court to talk to judges about the application of the rule of law to a particular case should not involve balancing of interest as a matter of public policy. Public policy decisions are made at the constitutional level by guess whom? We, the people. The American people enacted the United States Constitution. It's been amended, by the way, 26 times. So it's not like you can't change it if you want to. But of course, the left wing in America, Steve, wants to change the Constitution the way they want it to go through using unelected judges. That's been their modus operandi from the beginning. They don't like to go through the constitutional amendment process to speak to we the people. They would rather have unelected bureaucrats 
unelected judges make those modifications to the Constitution, because frankly, it's a lot easier to do so. But that's not how our system is supposed to work. Right. And so you mentioned here that there have been a lot of rulings post-Bruin, a lot, and especially compared to that period between Heller and Bruin. Uh, what are some of the biggest rulings in your mind? What are some of the biggest cases that have come down this far? Well, I think there's a whole host of them, and they, they, they come all over the country. A lot of these occur even in the so-called blue states. And I just want to say before I drill down into what I consider the big ones, judges in the American system or the English system, which is known as the common law system, which means the case law builds upon case law builds upon case law, which means Judge Gutowski makes a decision. Judge Smith looks at your decision and bases his decision on that. Then Judge Sotomayor bases a decision on that. And then Judge Barrett makes a decision based on that. So there's a building block process where every case decision becomes a precedent, which is analogous to like a brick. And every legal case in favor of the Second Amendment is another brick building up support and protection of our right to keep and bear arms. So with that in mind, what happens is because we've had so many judges have stepped up and applied NYSERPA versus Bruin correctly in support of the right to keep and bear arms, I think what you're seeing is other judges are seeing the prior judges ruling in favor of our rights, and they feel more emboldened, like, hey, I'm on the right path here. I'm not an outlier. And what we're seeing all across America is judges relying upon other judges to advance the right of the keep and bear our right to keep and bear arms in a way that we hadn't seen in the decade before NYSERPA versus Bruin. And that is making a big decision. And I like to talk about this on my channel, the Four Boxes Diner, that every one of these victories for the Second Amendment emboldens and encourages and reminds other judges that this is how you do it. You're not out there by yourself, um, you know, being some, you know, crazy person, outlier judge. You're doing what everyone is doing because it's the way it's supposed to be done. But as to the major decisions, I think there's a ton of them, uh, depending on how you want to look. And, but but I mean, just just look, let's just take a look, for example, in Oregon, uh, even though you had a federal judge that on a TRO uh, did not get it right when it comes to large so-called large capacity magazines, which is, you know, standard capacity magazines. If you look at the state court judge in Oregon, the, he felt comfortable enough under the Second Amendment through the, the sort of the states. Uh, you use the state's uh, constitutional uh, right there, but basically a lot of his analysis seemed and had a feel of nicer versus Bruin. You know, he enjoins this entire referendum uh, that was enacted in November by the people of Oregon, so to speak, to violate constitutional rights. And you had a judge that felt comfortable saying, no, this is not right. This is not constitutional under the Oregon Constitution. And he enjoined the entire law. And then the Oregon Supreme Court uh, says, yeah, we're going to let this go forward. We're not going to intervene if this lower court judge thinks it's a problem under the Constitution of Oregon. We're going to let that lower court stand in favor of gun rights and gun owners. And I think that's kind of an illustration of how uh, judges that recognize the importance of the right to keep and bear arms and the fact that it is a constitutional right, a fundamental constitutional right on par with the right to free speech, the right to a free press, uh, the right to religion uh, at the church or the mosque or the synagogue of your choice. Uh, I think we're starting to see the implications of the Supreme Court really putting their foot down in June of 2022 in Bruin and saying, enough is enough. You respect this right like the rest in the text of the Constitution. Yeah, you've seen that sort of logic play out in a number of cases, right? Uh, the, the Fifth Circuit case on uh, domestic violence um, restraining orders and the gun ban associated with that. There was also the uh, 
there was a case out of Texas, a federal case that dealt with the prohibition on obtaining firearms if you're under felony indictment, but haven't actually been convicted of anything yet. Uh, and, and both of those cases, I think they they really get at this idea of um, these rights are the Second Amendment rights are on the same level as First Amendment rights or any any other rights in the, contained within the, the Bill of Rights. And you need a higher level of uh, evidence and scrutiny in order to in, take those rights away. This sort of uh, seems to be a common theme in a number of these rulings so far. I mean, is that Absolutely. Do you, do you see it that I way? I mean, as well? Stephen, just just going across the country, you know, we have, you know, obviously certain aspects of California's crazy gun control law remains, you know, enjoined by Judge Benitez out there in district court in California. We just talked about the Oregon temporary victory where, you know, the Oregon referendum in, in terms of gun control was enjoined. We see in Illinois where, you know, Governor Pritzker helped pass a so-called assault weapon ban. That has been enjoined uh, on the grounds that that is unconstitutional. Then we see places like Colorado, where you had actually two Democratic pointies to the federal bench. I think one was an Ob one was a Obama uh, one was an Obama judge. I think one was a Biden judge, Biden, and they yeah. both enjoined uh, so-called local assault weapon bans in the state of Colorado. Uh, in New York, uh, we know what's up in the Second Circuit getting argued on March 20th. But in New York, you had multiple decisions, both by Judge Sinatra in the in, in federal court in Buffalo, but also Judge Sotheby in the Northern District of uh, of New York which I think he was in the courthouse in Syracuse, uh, in joining the so-called sensitive places rules about where people with concealed carry permits are not are allowed to carry gun, where they're not allowed to carry gun, in you know, places like Times Square and so on and so on. We also have seen you know, victories um, you know, against the ATF, for example, Cargill versus Garland, although that's technically a regulatory decision applying like the Chevron doctrine and questions about the rule of lenity and what authority the ATF has. But that was a terrible blow from the point of view of the ATF in favor of gun rights in that case of Cargill versus Garland. And that involved, of course, the, the bump stock ban, which was, to me, unconstitutional and illegal for a whole host of reasons. Uh, but again, we saw a major victory down there. And last but not least, in Joe Biden's home state, Stephen, right, we have a case called Rigby versus Jennings, where a uh, federal district court judge in Wilmington, Delaware, the land of Joe Biden, came out and says, you have a, you have a Second Amendment right to make your own gun. And the state's ghost gun law, which is a euphemism for just a gun that you make, um, that was unconstitutional under the Second Amendment. So this is just a handful of major victories uh, that we've seen here in the United States in the last you know, eight months or so. And I think there's a lot more coming because we just had a major argument this week in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, which is the question of whether or not, uh, in that case, it was a guy who had been convicted almost 20 years ago of a $2,000 uh, misdemeanor welfare fraud. I think he and his wife had, had, had somehow filled out the wrong paperwork or improperly filled out the paperwork and they got like $2,000 in public benefits they weren't entitled to and they pled guilty to a misdemeanor. And this guy, um, under federal law, because he potentially could have gone to jail for more than two years under federal law, he lost his right to keep him bear arms for life. And the Third Circuit Court of Appeals based in Philadelphia heard argument this week. And it seems to me, by every indication, they're not sympathetic to the government's position that says if you commit a $2,000 misdemeanor, you know, so-called congressional 
congressionally defined felony 20 years ago, you lose your gun rights forever. It did not seem like the court was sympathetic to that governmental viewpoint. And it looks like we may be on the road to a major victory in the Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit coming up in a few months. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, let's I, I want to get into sort of the broader legal arguments that are out there. But first, let's let's talk about some of these specific issues that, that you've mentioned here. Uh, you know, assault weapons bans. Do you see any of them surviving post Bruin scrutiny? No. Now, this is very important for people to understand about any kind of arms possession ban. When you're dealing with a ban on an arms, now that could be a law that bans the possession of AR-15s, which as you know, are nothing other than semi-automatic firearms. If you're dealing with a ban on so-called large capacity magazines or a ban on ammunition, these are forms of arms under the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The reason why this is important is because the United States Supreme Court in the Heller decision in 2008 already did the analysis of looking at the text of the Second Amendment and then looking for historical analogs of any longstanding traditions of restricting or banning firearms of any sort and concluded that if an arm in modern day America is in common use, it cannot be banned, it cannot be uh, thwarted, it cannot be banned, period, full stop. Now, all of these uh, so-called assault weapon bans deal with semi-automatic rifles and, and or magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. These are clearly arms, and they cannot be banned because it's understood by the world that these are in common use for lawful purposes. Now, the anti-gunners are trying to redefine that standard to say the legal standard is not that an arm has to be in common use for lawful purposes. They're trying to redefine and say, no, that the pro-Second Amendment people have to show that these arms are in common use for purposes of self-defense. But that is absolutely 100 percent not true, because if you just look at the dissent of Justice Stevens in the Heller case, he and his fellow dissenters, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg, talk about how the income, now they disagreed with this test, but they pointed out that the in common use test by the Supreme Court was discussing in common use for all lawful purposes, including hunting, self-defense, recreational use, and so on and so on. So, and then you look at the Caetano case from 2016, where the Supreme Court says that you and I and our listeners have a right to modern firearms that this argument that we're only entitled to muskets is silly. No, it's it, it's like, again, you know, the argument that Supreme Court points out, which we've all pointed out before, it'd be like saying you have a First Amendment right to pamphlets, but not a First Amendment right to use the TV or the telephone or the internet. That's clearly not how the Constitution works. So again, right. keep in mind I that- think they, I uh, think they called it borderline frivolous. It did, right? borderline frivolous. So, so the bottom line is when you're dealing with a gun ban case or arm ban case, as long as it's in common use. Now, the question is, what does in common use for lawful purposes mean? Well, right. the best indication is from the Caetano case, which talks about stun guns 
which were invented in the 1970s being in common use. And Justice Alito, in his, in his concurrence, talks about approximately 200,000 stun guns being owned by Americans for lawful purposes. He doesn't discuss about stun guns being used for self-defense or the number of times they're used for self-defense or anything like that. He just points out that possessing stun guns for Americans, oh, 200,000 or more, that's in common use. And I think that's very important to understand because uh, the Bruin methodology, which is the text first and then history second, uh, has already been done when it comes to these banned cases, like so-called assault weapon banned cases. So it should be very easy for our side to win these cases uh, as as they you know move forward in the system. Okay. And so I, we'll go from, because uh, I, I figured that's where you were going to come down on and Maybe we'll go from easier to harder here. Sure. How about uh, the sensitive places laws that you see in New York and New Jersey that have uh, they've already been uh, ruled unconstitutional by lower court judges to this point. But do you see any of those restrictions upstanding? For instance, the private property uh, sort of flipping that consideration on its head. Most states throughout American history have considered uh, it legal to carry on someone's private property unless they post a sign that says you can't. Now these states want to do the opposite of that, where make it illegal to carry on proper private property unless the owner posts a sign that says you can. Do you see that standing up? I think almost all the places that the government has defined as sensitive places, which, as you know, is a euphemism for government mandated gun free zones, are going to fall by the wayside. And let me tell you why. All of them. Included, what about the ones them, that the but, court but almost has. all of them, almost okay. all of them. They will be. There are, in fact, and the Supreme Court already said this. There are places that can be government mandated gun free zones if government wants to do that. For example, if you read the Nicerpa versus Heller case, they make three examples. They say that a sensitive place can be a polling place. A sensitive place can be a legislative chamber like Congress. And a sensitive place can be a courthouse. Now, if you go back in time and you take a look at this, you'll see that these sensitive places, you know, they all touch on government. They all had, you know, certain aspects of protections and whatnot. They weren't just, you know, stores, taverns. They weren't farmhouses, any of these sorts of things. So let's just take New York. So New York says if a place serves alcohol with a license for alcohol, that's a sensitive place and they can ban guns there. That's clearly not true because back, remember, the first thing to understand, Stephen, about the sensitive place analysis is what Bruin's methodology is. So the first thing is Bruin says you look at the text of the Second Amendment as interpreted by the Supreme Court. And once that text implicates a right to keep and bear arms, then the burden shifts to the government to come forth with historical analogs. So the first question is, when you're dealing with historical analogs, Stephen, is where in time do those historical analogs come from? And the answer is, they come from the 18th century in the time period of the adoption of the Bill of Rights in 1791, because it's black letter Supreme Court presidential law that says that when you're interpreting the Bill of Rights that was adopted in 1791, you look to the intent and the understanding of the people that adopted it at the time they did it, which is the late 18th century. So you get past 1826, which is the year that Thomas Jefferson and John Adams both passed away on July 4th. 1826, on the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, we're certainly indicating there's some divine intervention there, right? You get past that, the founding generation is, by and large, with very few exceptions, has passed away. So anything after that is not going to teach us, uh, as lawyers or judges, 
What does the Second Amendment mean? Because it's too late in time. The founding generation is gone, right? We're dealing with other generations and their intent doesn't matter so much. So you go back to 1791, Stephen, and you try to figure out what are the sensitive places. And again, you have those three examples, polling places, courthouses, and legislative chambers. And beyond that, you really don't have any. We know that you could have alcohol in, you know, in places, uh, for example, in France's Tavern in New York City, the Patriots met there uh, over beer and they talked and they all had guns. We know, of course, that in Boston, um, you know, they would meet at Sam, you know, Adams place. And there's countless examples. There's a famous story of Thomas Jefferson leaving his pistols behind in a tavern in, on his way to Congress, a famous letter that he wrote. So, you know, that's an example. When you go back in time and you look at historical legal analogs of bans of guns in sensitive places, they're very, very few. Now, you do bring up this notion of the default rule. The default rule in American history is you are allowed to bring guns onto private property unless you are stopped. The only kind of, you know, and the best example of that is think about hunting regulations where in America, generally speaking, you're allowed to hunt on other people's lands unless they do a proper posting that says no hunting. Again, right. the presumption is that you're allowed to bring guns onto other people's land unless they tell you not to do so. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, that, that does seem like an extremely novel approach that they're taking in New York and New Jersey and probably California here soon. But um, I think that that alone doesn't that call, call it into question just because it's never actually been tried anywhere before. Yes, exactly right. Because the Supreme Court has said that it, this is what it said in Bruin. If there is a social problem at the time of our founding that the founders looked at, had to consider and deal with. And if they did not deal with it in the form of some form of gun control, that is, that basically tells that the Second Amendment does not permit it. So I'll give you an example. So the anti-gunners in America are trying to say that wherever a lot of people congregate, that is a basis for us to say, you can't have guns there. But now let's go back. So let's go back as historians applying the text first and then historical analog second, which is what Bruin tells us to do. You go back to the founding fathers and you ask yourself at the time of the founding, when people congregated together, did they ban guns if there was a fear for safety? And the answer is absolutely not. They went just the opposite direction. The best example of this is churches, where every Sunday, everyone in the community, including you know Indian tribes and criminals and others that might want to do harm to the colonists or the patriots, they would you know they would come together at a church on a Sunday morning. Everyone knew this. And what did the founding fathers do when people congregated together? They did not put up no guns allowed, right? No guns allowed here signs. Instead, they encouraged people to bring guns to church. So that's in a kind of historical example the Supreme Court said is very telling that when you interpret the Second Amendment in modern America, what did the founders think about it? And when you had people congregating together, the answer was not gun control. It was just the reverse. It was let people bring guns. In fact, actually encourage people to bring guns to defend the community. And that would be an example of like, you know, talk about, you know, Times Square and all these other things, which, of course, you know, putting up a sign that says no guns allowed is absurd. Uh, the founding fathers were very familiar with the Italian Enlightenment philosopher, Cesar Beccaria, who wrote extensively in a book called On Crimes and Punishment that the Founding Fathers used extensively to write our Bill of Rights, including the criminal procedures, the Eighth Amendment, cruel and you know, pre preventions of cruel and unusual punishments. But in that book specifically, he talks about the right to keep and bear arms. And Cesar Beccaria literally writes that any laws that forbid 
the carrying or use of firearms by private citizens does absolutely nothing except help the criminal and hurt the law abiding. That is not an NRA slogan, Stephen. That literally comes from the 18th century Cesar Beccaria, whose book was so influential to the founding fathers that it was basically a side reading at the Constitutional Convention. All right. Well, let's get into some more uh, difficult, I think, issues to, to suss out how the court will react to this or how these will turn out. Uh, let's go back to some of these below felony conviction level gun bans that exist. So you've got, uh, you know, the felony indictment gun ban. It's, it's a little bit odd because you can't you're not barred from owning guns. You're just barred from obtaining them. But and then you've got uh, the one that's gotten a lot more attention recently, uh, which was uh, the Fifth Circuit's ruling in on domestic violence restraining orders, saying that that is not enough to um, bar someone from owning firearms either. What like where do you think that the court is going to come out if that well one do you think that case is going to make it to the court relatively soon? Uh, it's like one of the first circuit court decisions in the post post Bruin era, and I, it seems like something the government is going to appeal. Presumably, um, it seems like it's set up to be a Supreme Court case potentially. Uh, do you think it's going to make it there? What do you think is going to happen with that case and similar cases? Well, things have changed in terms of the dynamic of how cases get to the Supreme Court involved in the Second Amendment. Historically, if you look at cases like Heller, uh, you look at cases like McDonald and Bruin, you see these were cases brought by people that wanted to keep and bear arms. They were civil right. cases uh, challenging going up to the Supreme Court. But because of NYSERPA versus Bruin, you're seeing more and more of the Second Amendment being asserted as a defense in mm -hmm. criminal indictment, criminal cases. And yep. of course, historically speaking, in the court systems, because you're dealing with people's liberty interests, meaning we're going to put you in jail, uh, criminal cases often have, uh, they take priority in terms of speed because of the nature of the beast. And yes, I think what we're seeing here that's a little bit different is Criminal defendants are using the Second Amendment and Nyserpa versus Bruin to assert these various defenses. And we saw that in the Rahimi case where, you know, he said, yeah, I was caught, you know, I was allegedly uh, he had a gun when he was subject to a domestic restraining order. But he said, look, you know, under the Second Amendment, I'm entitled to my fundamental rights until I'm convicted of something, at least. And I haven't been convicted of anything here. And just a restraining order, which, as you know, a lot of these restraining orders could be rubber stamped. I mean, you know, restraining orders just means. I'm not allowed to come near somebody there. Anyone who's practiced law in the real world, meaning you're actually dealt with courts, you're actually in there with, 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 with judges, and you know how the real world works. Sometimes the making of the sausage in the legal system is not that pretty. And whenever there's any kind of suggestion that someone is not going to behave, um, it's not that hard to get a restraining order because judges are like, hey, you know, I'd rather just give a restraining order because I don't want to appear in the cover of the New York Post is not giving a restraining order. And then someone does something bad and kills an ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend or something. So judges have kind of an incentive to, you know, enter restraining orders on, shall we say, um, not necessarily the strongest uh, evidentiary record. Now, I don't know the Although specific in this, details. I will say in this case, case, go ahead. Yeah, in this case, this guy is actually kind of a little bit odd because he's almost certainly going to lose his gun rights anyway because he's, he's charged with like five other gun crimes uh, beyond possession with the restraining order. He including a number of like assaults with firearms. Um, so he's facing a bunch of charges in state court that haven't completely, he hasn't been convicted yet, but, but, um, but yeah, see, he seems like a pretty bad guy 
he's accused of being a pretty right. bad guy at least. And that's the but, thing, Steve. But I'm, I'm more interested in right like, until you're convicted. Sure. You're free. And I mean, that's right. the American system, you know. Uh, and that does you know, seem to be a really big. You're a free man and you're innocent. Yeah, it seems to be a really big part of why the Fifth Circuit, and the same for the felony indictment ruling out of Texas. A lot of the concerns seem to be around the fact that this was not a conviction that we're talking about. The, these are civil proceedings and they couldn't find a, a historical analog. I will say that they came closer in this case, I think, than in some of the other ones. Uh, surety laws are, uh, they, they, determined for a number of reasons that they aren't an analog, but they said that they're closer than some of the other defenses that were put up. What I'm interested in is whether you think the Supreme Court is going to take this and what you think they'll do with it. Well, the reason why I mentioned about the criminal cases is there's a whole host of these 18 U.S.C. 922G cases, you know, percolating mm -hmm. through the system. That, right. of course, is the prohibited person aspect of federal law. And there's a whole mess of these coming up uh, under the different provisions. In fact, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals we mentioned earlier in the Range versus Garland case uh, is a prohibited person case. Right. So really, see, what's, what I suspect is going to happen is in the next six to eight months, there's going to be a series of these cases are going to find themselves uh, at the cert petition before the U.S. Supreme Court. And it's not unusual for the court to look at a series of similar cases and try to pick what they consider to be the best vehicle for setting law in America. Because as you know, the United States Supreme Court, as a general matter, is not just about who wins the case. It's also about what precedential value can be set, what teaching value can be set by a particular case mm. and its opinions. And, you know, that is a major factor in when the Supreme Court decides whether or not to take a case. So, so I do so think the Rikini case is important, but... You know, it's going to be competing yeah. with other cases up there as well. It's not a lock that they'll take that Correct. Fifth Circuit domestic violence case, but do you think they'll probably take some sort of prohibited persons case? I think in the next 12 to 18 months, they are going to take more than one Second Amendment related case. If you look back in time, Stephen, going back decades, it's not unusual for the United States Supreme Court to take multiple First Amendment cases or multiple Fourth Amendment cases or multiple Fifth Amendment cases in a given term. So here with the Second Amendment, they've been taking, well, you took one case in 2008 with Heller, one case in 2010 with McDonald, one case in 2016 with Caetano, a case in 2022 uh, in Bruin, for example. So you see that spaced out. I think that there's a very good chance over the next, you know, 12 to 24 months, Stephen, we're going to start to see the Supreme Court take multiple Second Amendment cases in a given term to try to flesh out the edge cases to try to help courts make sure they get it right. Um, it, again, it goes back to the Supreme Court is not just about winning and losing. It's also about teaching the lower courts how to follow the law and interpret the Constitution and apply the law going forward all across America. So I think that we're going to start to see multiple Second Amendment cases in a given term in a way we haven't, um, you know, in the last 50 plus years. That would make a lot of sense, given how much litigation there's been since Bruin came out uh, and and that the government, it's, you know, the federal government is probably going to want the court to take a lot more cases where that hasn't really been the, the prerogative and uh, up to this point. But uh, uh, you, another question I have on where you think the court is going to go with, especially some of these prohibited person cases, uh, you know, obviously there's what Bruin says uh, and how the test is meant to be conducted. And then there's also some of the other things that the court has said in dicta, right, in Heller and in Bruin, or uh, and in concurrences like the Roberts and Kavanaugh concurrence in Bruin, that lead me to think at least that they may not 
always strictly follow Bruin, or at least not the way that you or I might expect a, a case to come out under Bruin. Do you think, you know, how much do other considerations come into play when you're talking about how the court handles these sorts of things? For instance, you know, the domestic violence restraining order prohibition or the, or let's say the domestic violence misdemeanor con conviction prohibition. Th these are very popular things. People don't like domestic abusers to have guns, right? Um, but at the same time, are there, are there historical analogs to, to justify these sorts of prohibitions? I think that's less clear, but would the, but I, I, you know, I wonder what the court would do in this situation because, you know, for instance, the Kavanaugh and Roberts concurrence, they basically say that shall issue gun carry permitting is perfectly fine, but they don't offer any sort of historical analogs for that process. So, you know, what do you think the practical outcome of these cases is going to be? Well, I think the practical outcome is that uh, the court as an institution is likes to do things incrementally. And the example I like to give is you think about the gay marriage, again, which is a completely different composition of the Supreme Court, of course. But, but if you go back to the 1970s, there's an attempt to make gay marriage a fundamental right. And that requires a series of incremental decisions where they start off with, let's make sure we have a right to privacy. Let's make sure there's a right to sodomy in the case called Lawrence. Then let's make sure you can't discriminate under certain laws uh, against, you know, uh, gays and lesbians in the case of Rome or out of Colorado. And you see these precedents build up over time. And eventually it gives rise to the Oberfeld case that says there's a right to gay marriage in America. Now, uh, I'm not drawing the analogy here to the Second Amendment, which is actually a text-based right. But the truth is the Supreme Court does like to do things incrementally because it's part of our common law system of case builds upon case builds upon case. And I think that if you want to ask me, what is the real purpose of the Kavanaugh-Roberts concurrence? I think what they're really kind of signaling to uh, litigants is to say, look, we don't think a facial challenge to shall issue permitting regimes is really where we're interested in going to next mm -hmm. because there's other things that probably need to get cleaned up in the law first before we look at those items. And I think that's a big part of it. The other thing, though, that's very favorable, the Kavanaugh-Roberts concurrence is not anti-gun in any respect. In fact, there's some very powerful language in there that's going to be very favorable to challenges to licensing divisions where these people are going slow or they're harassing law owners and making them, for sure. example, submit references or employer mm -hmm. information or you know uh, letters from a family member, this kind of stuff. If you look at the concurrence by Roberts and Kavanaugh, they say there's two problems with New York's may issue permitting scheme. One, of course, is it treats it as a privilege, meaning it's the government gets to decide whether or not you get the gun right, the right to carry the gun. That's the first part. But there's a second equally important thing they talk about. They say that the big thing here is it gives discretion to government officials and that discretion is not permitted. Now, when, when the government official is trying to look at a letter of reference, they're trying to look at your social media accounts, they're trying to talk about your mental health or physical records, right? What what are they doing? They're exercising their discretion to determine whether or not you can exercise your right. So the Kavanaugh-Roberts decision
decision, in addition to the majority decision, is very favorable because they say that any discretion exercised by government agents in terms of determining who gets the right to carry guns is not permitted. And I think that language actually is going to turn out very favorable uh, to the gun rights community going forward over the next couple of years because it really is going to take away discretion on the part of government officials to deny us the right to keep and bear arms, which is happening in certain places even to this day, so I hear. Yeah, that's a very fair point. Uh, I just also look at how the court has acted uh, since Heller, and I see a court that's, yeah, to your point, moving fairly slowly on some of these things and waiting for, at least in, up till now, public opinion to lead the way in a lot, maybe not intentionally, but that seems to be how it's come out. Like, you know, Heller says you can't ban handguns. Well, by that point in time, 2008, the idea of a handgun ban was extremely unpopular. It wasn't back in, you know, the, the 60s and 70s necessarily, but it was by 2008. Same thing for, you know, may issue gun carry or this idea that you can basically effectively deny people the, the ability to carry a gun for self-defense, you know, that had been at one point almost completely banned, at least for concealed carry throughout the whole country. But by t last year, no one banned totally uh, concealed carry, and only eight states had these May issue schemes in place. So, you know, the court isn't necessarily way ahead of public opinion on, on in those regards to this point. And that's where I wonder, like, how eager they are to move ahead of it in some of these areas. Um, I think this court is, if, if, if you just step back for a second and look at the composition of the Supreme Court and what they've done since the, you know, the nomination and confirmation of Justice Amy Coney Barrett. I mean, they've taken on and overturned Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs yeah. case. They've yeah. taken on affirmative action at the University of North Carolina and Harvard this term. I mean, these are big decisions. They That's did true. the NYSERPA versus Bruin case. They have a case called Harper versus Moore, which is a huge case we've talked about on my channel, The Four Boxes Diner, of how important this may be in terms of denying state courts the ability to basically rewrite, you know, legislative maps for federal elections. A very big deal that uh, the progressives in America are very nervous about. So this is a Supreme Court that's willing to follow the law where they think it takes them. And I don't think they're sticking their finger in the wind trying to sense where public sentiment is, because if they were mm -hmm. going to do that, they never would have taken like the abortion case, the affirmative action cases or Bruin or any of these other cases. So I think you're looking at a court that's trying to get it right and bring the Constitution and constitutional rights back to where uh, it, and restore them to where it never should have left. Interesting. Well, that's a fair point. I, I think it is legitimate to say that the, this court is more aggressive in that regard than, you know, some of the previous Roberts courts. But let's talk real quick here about that sort of overarching legal strategy that has played out. Uh, something that gun rights advocates are going to come up with, uh, come up against, I think, in future court, uh, cases. And I think that that Oregon TRO denial that you mentioned earlier in the show sort of encapsulates what I believe is going to be a common template for upholding, upholding modern gun laws by you know judges who are looking to do that. Uh, and so I wanted to just talk a little bit about how that she goes about doing that in that case um, and get your thoughts on. Uh, you know, this strategy and whether you think it's going to be effective or or if this is just a one-off. But if, basically, the argument seems to go, well, there's two, right? The first one, uh, 
Uh, and I, I imagine you agree with me that this is probably not going to last. The first one is to argue that, you know, high capacity magazines in this case in Oregon aren't protected by the Second Amendment because they're not arms, because you don't need a 10 round magazine to operate a, even a semi-automatic firearm. Uh, that approach you've seen a couple of times in different areas for just saying, well, do the first step. This isn't covered by the Second Amendment, even when it seems very questionable to make that assertion. Do you think that is going to continue to be a popular tactic among judges who want to uphold modern laws? I think it's a popular tactic among the anti-gun lawyers and the government lawyers that are trying to um, uphold gun control laws. Because again, the way it's supposed to work in a nice super versus ruin is you read the plain text of the Second Amendment as those terms are defined by Supreme Court precedent. So when you look at the right of the people to keep and bear arms, you look at how they define arms, which is all bearable arms. And the reason why the anti-gunners want to fight everything out at the plain text level is because the burden of proof, once the plain text is implicated in a case, the burden of proof shifts to the government to prove, come forth with historical analogs, which is very difficult to do because in 1791, there are relatively few gun control or gun-related laws. So the anti-gun and the government lawyers are really working hard to try to fight it out of the plain text. But the truth is, you know, magazines are arms because you can't operate a semi-automatic modern firearm without magazines, whether it be fixed or detachable. You still need a magazine. And we know that both in Heller and the Caetano case, the Supreme Court says that modern firearms are protected arms. And what is a modern firearms well, it's a semi-automatic rifle or semi-automatic handgun. And right. what do you need for semi-automatic firearm is you need a magazine. And there are there is so so now you have magazines are arms, and once they're arms, the burn shifts to the government to come forth with a historical analog from 1791 or from that time period to show that you know there are firearm capacity limitations in any respect, and those simply do not exist uh, at all. So the government loses. So yeah, I think that Oregon uh, federal judge is a template. But again, we'll see. I think she may turn it around in the next six to eight months, because as you know, in Oregon, that law has been enjoined by the state courts. So mm -hmm. the emergency is no longer in the federal system because it's not in effect. But I think that there's a good chance that federal judge, uh, you know, going down the road is going to get it right. Because on a TRO, sometimes the judges don't like to, you know, they feel like they're under too much pressure to act quickly and not study the case. But I think when that judge studies the case in Oregon, I think there's a good chance that judge um, uh, Emory gut is going to get it right. I think that's interesting, but uh, more interesting to me than that first argument, right? So th this is what she first says, and then just says, I don't need to do the rest of the analysis because this isn't protected by the core of the Second Amendment, sort of a short circuit way out of the doing analysis. But she actually does go on and offer an a Bruin analysis as well, uh, which I think is more interesting and likely to be more influential, uh, which is essentially that Bruin allows for the idea that there are modern situations that come up because of modern weaponry that didn't exist at the time of the founding, that the founders didn't have to uh, grapple with, that require modern solutions, right? They, and in those situations, you can uh, uh, analyze by analogy, right? That this is where a lot of the historical analogy stuff comes in. And the judge argued that because mass shootings were not a as much of an issue during the founding era, that these are a modern problem and that uh, 
in her analysis, she argues that high capacity magazines, magazines that hold more than 10 rounds are sort of a catalyst for mass shootings that, uh, Therefore, she can analyze by analogy and she uses an extremely broad uh, view of what is analogous to – she sort of – that's where it's, I think, more of a first draft thing. She kind of just throws every gun law that existed uh, during the 18th century at the wall and even uh, you know some from the, the mid-19th century. But to conclude that effectively magazine bans are fine – uh, because because of this construction under Bruin. What do you think of that approach? It's clearly wrong, very easy to rebut, and uh, I don't think she will make that mistake a second time. Because remember, as I mentioned earlier, when you're dealing with a ban on arms, whether those arms are magazines, whether they're bullets, whether they're guns, the Supreme Court has already done the Bruin analysis. The Bruin methodology of text first, history second, was done by the United States Supreme Court in gun ban or arms ban cases in Heller. And all the Second Amendment plaintiff has to show, technically speaking, the government has to show it's not true, but set that issue aside. Um, all, the sec all the Second Amendment plaintiff has to show is that the relevant arm is in common use. And when you're dealing with magazines that hold more than 10 rounds, there's hundreds of millions of these in America. They're ubiquitous. So she applied the wrong standard because she thought she, as a district court judge, which Article 3 of the United States Constitution refers to as inferior courts, meaning they're inferior to the Supreme Court, she applied the wrong legal standard because the standard is the Heller test, which is in common use, which again, if an arm is in common use by Americans for lawful purposes, which semi-automatic rifles are, semi-automatic handguns are, magazines that go in those, wep those weapons are, uh, bullets are, because they're needed for guns to function as guns, uh, those, those are all in common use. They are protected, period, full stop. Now, there are two arguments that you've mentioned that the anti-gunners are trying to develop they're trying to say first, well, these are technological advances uh, that are brand new and, you know, it's, right. it's simply not true. And we know that not don't trust me. Trust what the Supreme Court itself has said. I mean, Heller said that modern handguns, which are semi-automatic handguns, are protected arms under the Second Amendment. Brett Kavanaugh, who's currently a Supreme Court justice when he was a judge on the D.C. Circuit, on the D.C. Court of Appeals, in a case called Heller 2, wrote a dissent saying that obviously if semi-automatic handguns are protected arms under Heller, then semi-automatic rifles are protected arms. And he said that. And then, of course, in Caetano in 2016, the Supreme Court, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg in on the court, said that obviously modern firearms are protected by the Second Amendment because modern technology is protected by the Bill of Rights, just like, you know, just like in the First Amendment and other amendments, right? And specifically, Justice Alito. Alito, in his concurrence in Caetano, literally uses the words semi-automatic pistol, as in semi-automatic pistols are protected by the Second Amendment. And again, that means magazines, by definition, are protected. So there's nothing new about this technology. And of course, historically, and I've written about this in my books, you know, the Gerondoni air rifle that held between 20 and 24 rounds at the time of the founding was, you know, walked out west by Lewis and Clark. When President Thomas Jefferson sent them out west to explore the Louisiana Purchase Territory, 
which we bought from Napoleon Bonaparte, they brought weapons that held between 20 and 24 rounds. So it's not like the technology was new. And of course, we know in Article 1 of the United States Constitution, one of the Congress's powers is to create a patent and useful arts office to approve and encourage technological advances. So the founders were well aware that technology was going to improve. So the other point, though, Stephen, I'll touch this quickly, um, that they mention is that there's new phenomena out there. There's a new social problem that the founding fathers right. were not aware of. And they try to say there's mass shootings, mass killings. But again, anyone that knows any basic American history knows that's not true. Let's just start with the most basic observation. In the year of our Lord, 1770, Right at the start of sort of the very beginning of the process that gave rise to the American Revolution, you have something called the Boston Massacre. The Boston Massacre was when British soldiers shot in a mass shooting in downtown Boston, 11 Americans, five of whom were killed. It is a mass shooting in the year of our Lord, 1770 in the middle of our founding generation. That is beyond, of course, all the various you know, Tory raids and Indian raids that literally killed dozens of people in single incidents you know, all across the colonies, not to mention the fact that the Gordon riots, which of course took place in London, England at the time, but so they were in a different country, but the, you know, Americans considered themselves to be part of the English system. The Gordon riots in a period of five days killed 600 plus people. So the founding fathers were well aware of the dangers of mass killings and mass shootings. And it was a social problem they were aware of. And I go back to the church example. When you were worried about a mass killing of congregated Americans, such as they were in the case of churches, what did the founding fathers do? They did not put up no guns allowed signs. They did not ban guns. Instead, they actually encouraged people to bring guns to church. So any suggestion that mass killings or mass shootings is a new social phenomenon is simply historically not true. Yeah, I mean, I think those are are good critiques of this argument. Uh, I still think that that argument is probably going to be repeated a number of times in federal courts uh, around the country as some lower court judges try to uphold some of these restrictions that exist. But uh, but yeah, that, I think you've laid out a pretty good case as to why this doesn't work. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to keep coming up, right? But uh, but thank you so much for taking the time to be on with us and, and to give us this insight and give us an overview of what's going on in the legal landscape, because you are one of the people that I think is more knowledgeable about this than anyone else, honestly. So uh, it, let people know where they can find more of your analysis if they want to keep up with you. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I try to put out a video every day on some of these geeky legal topics at the Four Boxes Diner YouTube channel. Um, you know, I really try to get into the weeds because I think it's very important. I think a lot of, you know, judges and law clerks and lawyers and people, you know, legal intellectuals, scholars, you know, kind of do like to look to see what I say, because I do publish a lot of articles and law review articles, uh, really in the sort of the detailed, um, the, the bowels of the legal system, as you will, because, you know, before I became kind of a scholar academic. You know, I was a longtime trial lawyer at major law firms in New York City. So I'm kind of a unique, uniquely situated team in that, that I really have seen uh, the realities of the American legal system as a, as a litigator, as a, as a lawyer representing clients all over the country in major matters. But then I also have kind of this, you know, sort of academic bent. So I have a unique perspective on where I think things are going in the courts um, because I, you know, sort of done it for clients for many, many years. And it 
addition to the fact of my support of the right to keep and bear arms, which I do think is our most important uh, freedom. Yeah. And I mean, I think your knowledge really shines through in a lot of your videos, and that's why I enjoy them. Uh, you don't rely on clickbait headlines or anything like that. Your your content is very much in line with uh, you know how you've been on on our show today, and it's very detailed and and focused on the law. And I think you have great analysis. Uh, you know, certainly a really good pro gun perspective on what's happening in the courts with the Second Amendment. Uh, probably the the best I've seen on YouTube, honestly. Well, thank, uh, and, you, thank and, you. Appreciate that. And it's popular, which is, you know, almost <laughs> shocking. You know, you have 100,000 subscribers yeah. now. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah. And it, yeah, it goes to show that this that sort of serious content can be very popular on uh, social media places like YouTube. So I appreciate seeing that as well. So people should head over there and, <laughs> and watch some of your videos after after they finish this podcast. Uh, because it's really valuable stuff. So thanks for coming on. Thanks, Tim. You know, I just want to add one more thing, though. You know what is a shame is that the heroic story of America and the role of the firearm in preserving our freedom and creating the greatest country that's ever existed on planet Earth, the heroic story of the gun and patriots and, and, and our history, is seems to be lost on purpose in many parts of this country. So one of the things I try to do on my YouTube channel is I do try to talk about the heroic American, the heroic America. I'm not saying that we're perfect or that anything is perfect. Nothing is perfect involving the human experience, but uh, you know, a lot of good has came out of this country and uh, I, I, I don't intend, uh, I certainly don't want that to get lost and I, and I hope uh, it doesn't. I hope I can help preserve it. Absolutely. Well. Uh, we will have to have you on again sometime in the future to get your, uh, your expertise on topics as they, as they roll out, especially these federal court cases that are coming in a mile a minute. So great. Really appreciate you coming on and we'll, we'll see you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on Stephen. All right. It's time for the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer, Jake Fogelman joined of course by reload founder, Steve Gutowski. How you doing this week, Steve? I'm doing all right. You know, still recovering from the Super Bowl. That sucked, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I'd be more upset if we hadn't won the Super Bowl a couple of years ago, I think. Um, you know, there's a lot of things. Still pretty annoyed at the NFL with how terrible that field was. Uh, you know, the, the NFL, <clears throat> I mean, the best pass rush in a generation, and they, they couldn't even do anything <laughs> because they slipped right. all over that field. Uh, you know, Chiefs played on the same field and all that, but. Of course, the Eagles' whole defense was built around that pass rush. So, uh, and obviously, that holding call at the end was—it really ruined a really strong game. It's not—it's not a guarantee that the Eagles would have come back and score, obviously, but took all of the tension out of it. Of right. course, with the ticky-tack call like that. Anyway, <laughs> maybe the Sixers will get there and and lose two this year. <laughs> there's a chance there's a real chance that they could do that too that classic so, philly pessimism i like it <laughs> yeah well it's it's very much reinforced these days yeah. keep getting to these championships and then losing them um it's the third one <laughs> right um but anyways on to the uh the gun news of the week um we have a new development out of florida where 
Governor DeSantis has now commented publicly on sort of the relationship between the gun industry and the finance industry and the banks. And you, you have a piece about uh, a statement that he made on what he plans to do if you want to fill us in on what's going on. Yeah, so DeSantis had a rally on Tuesday with the uh, the, the leader of the Senate, the Republicans in the Senate in Florida, and the, how, the Speaker of the House from Florida, who's also Republican. And they <clears throat> talked about their proposal to enact regulations similar to what Texas has done with banking, which is to target banks that uh, implement a ESG agenda. So basically they incorporate sort of social considerations into their business decisions. Um, And so they, you know, they, they don't do business with oil companies or uh, private prisons or uh, especially the firearms industry in the, you know, for our purposes here. But yeah, so he proposed, there's not written legislation yet, but the three of them set on the stage that they're going to effectively bar big banks that have these sort of policies from doing business with the state of Florida, right? So they're, they're using Florida's municipal funds to uh, combat this, what they call a woke agenda, right? F- uh, from these large financial institutions. And so that means, you know, they won't off, we don't give them government contracts from the state of Florida. They won't keep the state of Florida's money in their bank accounts at these banks, uh, and, and stuff like that. So it's a fairly significant thing, be- mainly because of the size of Florida, right? Texas did this and, um, you know, the, those two states alone are have quite a lot of economic power behind them. So, uh, you know, it, it's a pretty big cudgel, I guess you could say. And uh, they're going to use it in this case to try and prevent banks from dropping gun businesses. Yeah, no, like, uh, I think it's definitely a big deal because obviously Florida is a, at this point a, a deep red state, I think after uh, November, they now have a supermajority in the legislature. So obviously, whenever a, a formal bill does get introduced, there's a good shot that it passes. And Florida, as you said, joins Texas as these two big red states with massive market uh, potential that can kind of flex their muscles a little bit in the, the finance industry. And I think politically, uh, this does a lot for DeSantis, who it has made some positive comments around guns and being pro-gun generally, but doesn't really have a long track record to to show for. And obviously, I think everyone knows he has higher political aspirations. So I don't know what you think about that, how that helps his odds maybe down in a crowded primary field down the line. Yeah, certainly. I think that this is part of uh, his strategy on guns going into the Republican primary. But yeah, he is sort of shoring up his right on the issue of guns. You know, they're, They've also proposed constitutional carry, permitless carry in Florida as well, which he's He's supported in the past, but hasn't really made a push for in the same way that, you know, Kemp did in Georgia. Uh, and and Florida is one of the only triple red states that doesn't have permitless carry at this point. So he's kind of behind the curve on this issue. And now it seems like they're like they're going to pass that bill. And he's incorporating the gun issue into his sort of anti big bank agenda now as well. And I think that's all on purpose. It's fairly smart politics with the 
the bag stuff because he was already, you know, likely to make these kind of moves over, you know, other aspects of what the banks are doing. Um, you know, he, he accuses them of using a social credit system that disfavors, you know, right-leaning businesses or individuals. And so he actually, they had a specific example during this, this event where Brandon Wexler, who's owns Wex Gunworks, which is a story that we reported on. He was dropped by Wells Fargo. Uh, Wells Fargo had sent him letters that said he was a risk and that it was because of the industry that he worked in, which is, you know, dealing firearms and, but didn't give any further details as to what the risk was. And, uh, and then later claimed that it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that he's a gun dealer and that they're committed to staying in business with gun companies. But obviously this created a lot of news and controversy. And so Wexler was actually there at this event speaking with the governor. Um, and so he, he took this story, he took this, what happened with Wells Fargo and is incorporating that into what he was already doing, which was using, you know, sort of state government power to push back against corporations, large corporations that he thinks are woke or are, you know, pursuing a social agenda that he doesn't like, you know, obviously he had the fight with Disney and now he's doing a similar playbook with big financial institutions like Citibank or Bank of America and, and Wells Fargo. So uh, it's fairly, fairly smart politics, I think, uh, to, to do that because Florida has a really good reputation for being pro-gun, but in recent years has really fallen behind the rest of, you know, red America, at least when it comes to actual policy. Yeah, uh, I, I agree that it's very politically savvy, you know, regardless of the merits of the policy, it d definitely plays well to the sort of brand he's been built building kind of as you pointed out, he sort of staked his reputation on the guy that's willing to fight against these, you know, woke corporations or whatever, mm -hmm. um, and to rope firearms in there, which is obviously going to be a big primary issue, at least on the Republican side. That's uh, pretty much all upside, I think, for him for a potential presidential candidacy, candidacy, trying to fend off other rivals, like you pointed out, Kemp and Abbott, we don't know if they're going to run, but they're, you know, at least potential contenders. Um, and he's no longer vulnerable on those issues, if he can, you know, raise his profile doing things just like this. Yeah, I mean, it's probably it's something that might turn off, you know, your more libertarian leaning conservatives, right? But I think over the last four or five years, you start to wonder how many of those actually exist, even if you are one. Like, right. um, and so for Republican primary voters, they, they definitely seem to want this sort of government action uh, against the companies or groups that they perceive to be, you know, their enemies or their pe people who are against them. Right. And so, uh, you know, th this kind of combines his that's been his real marquee thing as governor. And so this is a way to incorporate a new issue into that political strategy. And it's, yeah, it probably is a pretty smart move in that regard for the people he's trying to appeal to. And, um, you know, it, certainly it'll be interesting to see, like he, he's vulnerable on this issue to people like Kemp or Abbott in Texas who were ahead of him, but I, you know, are they even going to run? Uh, you know, he, he, is this going to be more than a three or four person race by the end of the things, you know, how many other people are are actually um, you know further to the right on 
on guns than he is because Trump is, has a fairly mixed record himself. Uh, certainly he instituted the bump stock ban unilaterally, which just got struck down as unconstitutional in the fifth circuit. Um, <clears throat> you know, he made a lot of comments after Parkland about taking people's guns and then having due process later. You know, there was a lot of public comments, obviously at the same time, He's gone to every NRA convention. The NRA is kind of, you know, in his pocket in terms of like, they're extremely tied to Trump at this point. And, um, and they're still, as we've talked about before, the largest group, despite all their struggles. And, uh, and then of course he has the sort of Trump card, I guess, to say of appointing two Supreme Court justices who have been, uh, you know, on the program side in this major landmark ruling we've covered extensively, you know, in Bruin. So, you know, certainly shoring up his position on guns with some actual accomplishments while he's, you know, before this primary really kicks off would be smart politics. Yeah. I think one thing that'll be interesting to watch is just how these banks react. Uh, obviously, mm. um, Texas passed this policy and you saw like Citigroup, for example, I think that was like the big sparring partner with the attorney general, Ken Paxton over there, where he was going to review all the contracts with the state of Texas and review yep. cities policies to see if they're in line. Um, yeah. And he said they aren't. He certified right, them. And yet he yeah, decertified them from, from doing Even though Citibank claimed that they were uh, sort of paradoxically because Citibank hadn't changed their. So, right, you know, the core of this issue a, is like. Citibank and Bank of America, for instance, uh, had actual policies that they put out that they said they wouldn't work with companies that make AR-15s or uh, or sell them or same thing for magazines that are high capacity, although they, didn't, they don't define what that means. And it means different, just like assault weapon, it means different things depending on what state you're in or how people are defining it. It's, these are nebulous terms. But so they've, they've sort of wanted to use their their bank's influence to try and force gun companies into you know not making these legal products and that's what a lot of people have gotten upset about over the years right and and so that's where this all stems from but texas you know the attorney general there as you mentioned decertified them or you know said that they weren't in compliance with this law and uh, so, that, yeah, it's it has I mean, it has repercussions on both ends because city yeah. bank can't do business in the largest state in the uh, one of the largest is the second largest. Right. Yeah. Um, in the country. And then so I think California is still bigger. They still are. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they can't do business there with the state government, at least they can still, you know, operate in Texas. They just don't get state contracts. Um, and. But at the same time, it makes doing state business more expensive because they have to go out and find other banks. Uh, and so they generally get charged more money. But, you know, I think a lot of people who support these sort of policies see this as, you know, an intractable battle. Like if you uh, if the financial in industry shuts out the gun industry, how can you do business at all? Right. And that's that's where I think the support for this comes from. Yeah, especially when the big ubiquitous players like your Wells Fargo's, your Bank of America's, the ones that are in every state and usually have one of the largest market shares shut you out. So I certainly yeah, see the appeal. I just wonder if we'll see more like, for example, the, in the story that you wrote, Wells Fargo put out, I think yeah. it was from the last letter they sent to Brandon Wexler, 
where they said, oh, don't worry, we we intend to continue doing business with the firearms industry. So we don't know if they're going to continue yeah. to put out symbolic <clears throat> statements like that or or maybe symbolic statements uh, or if they'll actually see a change in their in their lending practices and their banking practices. Uh, right. I mean, that's the thing about Wells Fargo is that they never they never made one of these statements that they wouldn't do business with certain kinds of gun companies. Um, they just have uh, been accused, at least by you know the National Shooting Sports Foundation, for instance, of sort of backdooring a policy like that where they right. where they do what they did to Wexler, which is like they cut ties, but they don't explicitly say that it was because, you know, you're selling certain kinds of guns they don't like. And so that's much harder to prove, obviously, uh, yeah. especially if Wells Fargo comes out and says that's not what's going on. Uh, and so a law like this might be harder to use against uh, a bank like Wells Fargo. And it, that's, you know, they're, they're probably doing that. And um, it, it was interesting to see Citibank try to get certified in Texas anyway, without, they never came out and said they were changing this policy, but, you know, they tried to say that they were in compliance with what the, you know, technical rule in Texas is. The attorney general, of course, rejected that. And that's probably what it'll come down to is like, what is the attorney general in these states? What do they decide about what constitutes complying with this sort of uh, mandate? And, uh, and, you know, Again, this is about, it's sort of a, they're, they're not trying to ban Wells Fargo or Citibank or any of these other large companies from doing business in the state. They're, they're using government resources to, um, you know, to, to say that we're not going to do, we're not going to have our accounts with you. Uh, so it's probably safer in terms of, you know, judicial review in that sense. You know, the state can choose who it wants to bank with, but. Uh, you know, they'd have a lot more trouble if they tried to, you know, shut down Citibank in all of Texas or all of right. Florida. Um, so it's a little more savvy than something like that. But but it will be interesting to see how this plays out and what kind of effect it has, because, you know, like, like I said, there's this it's doing damage to both ends where, you know, Citibank and Bank of America and Wells Fargo are going to have trouble getting these large state contracts. And at the same time, those states are going to have trouble getting the best rates when they go to finance debt or what, what have you. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, whether one side blinks perhaps or, or what happens, but uh, certainly we will be following it. And it'll also be interesting to see how this strategy plays out in the Republican primary, right? Which is right now looking like it's going to be pretty competitive between DeSantis and Trump, of course, it's very early and right. how things look very early in a primary tend not to be how things turn out <laughs> by the end of one. So we will have to see uh, how all of that plays out and we will be following it here at The Reload. So make sure you stay tuned, subscribe to this channel on YouTube, follow us on your favorite podcasting app, share this content if you want to help us reach more people with what we're doing and, you know, of course, head over to reload.com and check out our membership options today if you want to support our work. That is how we fund our reporting is the only way it's member funded. We are a small company that is uh, not owned by any giant corporation or uh, some shady investors or whatever. Our members are the people who fund our reporting. And so if you want to be part of that, you can head over and join today. You'll also get, of course, exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of member-only content, 
a lot of analysis pieces. I'll have a piece on this DeSantis situation this weekend in the members only Sunday newsletter as well. And you'll get access to this podcast a day early too. And the opportunity to appear on the show, which we'd love to have another member say it's one of my favorite segments that we do. So please reach out, just reply to your Sunday newsletter. If you are already a member and want to be on the show, we would love to have you. And uh, yeah, until next week, we will see you guys. 